Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. We come in our mini-series in the book of Habakkuk today to the third chapter, the final chapter of this book, and I want to read the first two verses. Habakkuk chapter 3, as we speak on the prophet's hope for revival. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Shigionoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. In wrath remember mercy. Have you ever heard someone say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why? did this happen? I have a few questions that I want to pose to the Almighty. Well, the prophecy of Habakkuk has taught us that God does not always give us answers. In fact, he doesn't owe us answers. He's the sovereign king. We're his subjects. And even though he doesn't always give us answers, he always does give us himself So instead of a preoccupation with questions about pain and suffering and the problem of evil in our world, we should focus on who our God is, draw closer to him in personal fellowship, live in the comfort of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, and wait with blessed hope for the final resurrection to heavenly glory in which all of our questions will be swallowed up in an immediate view of the splendor and glory of Jesus Christ. In other words, what I'm saying is we should live by faith right now. But one of the problems with living by faith is, by definition, it involves an element of delayed gratification. We can't have right now everything that we want. That's really the theme of the book of Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. I think Habakkuk started out in this experience in the first chapter with a desire for revival. Lord, why aren't you working? Your people are in a deplorable condition, is his complaint. And he prays, how long, O Lord, why aren't you doing something? Habakkuk likely wants God to intervene and to restore the spiritual life of the people to draw the people back to him. He longs and yearns for an outpouring of the presence and spirit of God. I believe Habakkuk wants revival. Instead of sending revival, God does the very opposite. He sends judgment. He says the Chaldeans are coming and he is fierce like a lion, like an eagle swiftly finds its target, so the Chaldean will swoop down and sack the nation and carry the people into Babylonian captivity. That was God's answer to Habakkuk's desire for revival. And then Habakkuk faces this conundrum, how can a just God use a more wicked nation than his covenant people as an instrument of chastisement for us? And he said, I'll just wait in my watchtower until God gives me an answer. And God does give him an answer. And his answer is, 
Habakkuk. Babylon is being used as an instrument of my judgment, but they won't get away with it forever. Her own sins will bring Babylon down. Payday is coming someday, and in the meantime, you need to live by faith that heaven will resolve all of your conflicts and that I am in sovereign control. That's the story of Habakkuk. And I believe Habakkuk, at the end of chapter 2, has come to a sense of contentment and submission to the sovereignty of God. He's satisfied with God's answers to his questions. That one day every wrong will be made right. That one day the scales of justice would be balanced. He's satisfied with that. Does that satisfy you today, my friends? I hope it does. You say, I want it right now. I want justice to be served right now. I want righteousness to reign right now. It's hard to think about waiting until heaven. But I'll tell you, my friends, if you could and I could see the big picture, this present life is just a little blip on the radar screen compared to the timelessness of eternity. And after just 10 seconds in heaven, you'll forget all about your complaints about not having what you thought was right right now. Yet, although he's content that it'll all be better by and by, we sing about that, don't we? We sing farther along, we'll know all about it. You say, well, what about right now? Farther along, we'll understand why. We sing that. And I hope that that helps you because a heavenly perspective is meant to help us survive and cope with the problems of the moment. That's true. Christians are people who don't just live for this world. We know there's more to reality than this present little parentheses of time that we call life and earthly existence. I hope you know there's more important things than how much money you have in the bank and what kind of house you live in and what kind of car you drive. I hope you know that that is really minuscule in importance. It pays into insignificance in comparison to the grandeur of eternal bliss. I hope you know that. But still, it's hard for us, isn't it? We say, but still, Brother Mike, I have hope that extends beyond this world. You know, if in this life only we have, you say, I'm, I'm hoping for a better day. Well, the Christian's hope goes into eternity. Our hope is not only confined to this world, but we're hoping for a better world, a better resurrection, right? But at the same time, here's the thought this morning. Even though our focus should be on the long term, delayed gratification, living by faith in a future day of bliss and justice and peace. Yet, it's not wrong to pray for and to hope for God's help and his reviving work right now. So the prophet comes back to his initial desire, I believe, in chapter 3. When he says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and I was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. We're going to Babylon for 70 years, but while we're there, in the middle of our years of captivity, Lord, don't forget your people and do a work in our midst. And may I say that God answered that prayer. For you know what happened in Babylon? There was a group of Jews who were very pious and devout who had a desire to preserve the old religion, although they were living in this foreign country. 
and they became known as the separated ones. We call them Pharisees. Now, when we hear the word Pharisee, we think of something bad. But, you know, originally the Pharisees were a group of people who were serious about keeping the old paths, maintaining the true worship of God. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Ezekiel, those are at least five that I know of, Jewish people who were very committed to refusing to compromise with Babylon and worshiping God. Daniel prayed three times a day according to the law. They were continuing to teach and to preach and to practice true religion, even though it was not popular. I think a lot of the Jewish people probably compromised with the Babylonians. They ate the king's meat. But Daniel and those men we know purposed in their hearts that they would not defile themselves. They wouldn't break the dietary laws that God had given to the Jews with the king's meat. They wouldn't defile themselves. They were insistent that they be allowed to serve Jehovah instead of Nebo. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, his name comes from Nebo. The first syllable of his name comes from the god Nebo, the moon god. The Babylonians worshipped nature. They were pagans. And Daniel and the three Hebrews we know were true to the true God. So when they set up a statue in Babylon and said, this is the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, and anytime you hear any musical note, whatever the source of it, whether it comes from a flute or a harp or whatever, then that is your signal to bow down and to remember the deity of the emperor, emperor worship. Daniel and the three Hebrews said, we can't do that. That would be a violation of the very first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so they were committed, and because of that, they got in trouble. What happened to Daniel? He was thrown into the lion's den. What happened to the three Hebrew children? They were thrown into the fiery furnace. They suffered persecution, but even then, God took care of them. But you see how hard it was to live a godly life in an ungodly environment. And here's the thought this morning. It's all going to be okay when we get to heaven. It'll be better by and by. But what about right now? Is there any hope for revival right now? You ever wondered that? Okay, I'll be satisfied when I get over yonder, but I'd love to see an awakening in the church. I'd love to see the smiles of the Lord on the saints of God. I would worthy prove to see thy saints in full prosperity. Lord, I desire revival. It's not wrong to pray for that. And so in Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk says, O Lord, I know judgment's coming, but in the very middle of the years, you know, while we're there, would you renew a spiritual interest in the lives of your people? God, I believe, answered that prayer. Revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, wrath is coming. Judgment is about to fall. God is a God of wrath. And he doesn't deny that, and he doesn't object to it. God has the right to hold people accountable to his holy law. But yet he says, in wrath, would you please remember mercy? What a great prayer this is. He knows that God's a God of justice, but he also knows that God's a God of love. And what you have in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 2 to 16, is Habakkuk's prayer for revival. I think we can learn an important lesson from this, my friends, and that is we must never cease to cry out to God. Whatever the circumstances around us, whatever 
his displeasure or judgment upon us in our nation might be today, we must never cease to cry out to God on behalf of his church and kingdom in this world. You say, Brother Mike, I want to see America revived. That'd be great, but I don't have a lot of hope for a national revival. In this age when wicked men are waxing worse and worse, I don't see a whole lot of hope for a widespread, comprehensive, global turning to God. Do you know what's going to initiate the final and ultimate revival? The second coming of Jesus Christ. When he comes again, every enemy will be put underneath his feet, and then every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But short of the Redeemer's glorious return, my friends, I don't have a lot of hope for this planet or for the political systems of men, but I do have hope for Zion. I do have hope for the church, for the people of God, and I pray that God would return and visit this vine the vineyard of his own right hand's planting. By the way, I'm quoting from Psalm 80. Wouldest thou revive us again? I believe it's right to cry out in prayer on behalf of the church and the kingdom of God in this world. Would you listen to a few prayers? Isaiah 62, 7. Listen to this prayer for revival. He says, Give him no rest, O Jerusalem. Hold not your peace day or night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence. Give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. What he's saying is, brethren, pray from daylight to dark and then some. You say, well, I'm afraid God's going to get tired of me asking. No, my friends, don't ever fail to pray. Thy kingdom come to pray for the kingdom of God, that it would be more and more manifest that his reign would be more and more clear and transparent, that people more and more would come to bow the knee to him. He says, don't give God any rest. In other words, be persistent in your prayers, persevere in prayer, and watch thereunto with all patience and perseverance until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Look at the 64th chapter of Isaiah, verse 1. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, says the prophet. Here's a prayer for revival. Oh God, I pray that you would rend the heavens, tear an opening in the portal of eternal glory. Lord, would you rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. As when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil. For this purpose, Lord, Come down to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. And then he goes forward to talk about the past, when thou didst terrible things which we looked not for. That is, we were not expecting God to intervene, but yet, Lord, you've done it in the past. Would you do it again in the present? We sing a hymn about that sometimes. It goes like this. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. Have you ever been sitting there yawning your way through a worship service and suddenly something was said? Some scripture was quoted. You saw that some brother or sister was deeply moved when you were very cavalier about it all. And suddenly, it's like the Lord came himself and sat beside you. It's like a light broke through. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. Has that ever happened to you during song service? You ever been singing sweet hour prayers? And you thought, that's what this is. This is a sweet hour. I've taken it away from the rest of 
my activities in life, and I've, I've found a few moments, a sweet hour of prayer that draws me from this world of care. Have you ever been singing, And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, and suddenly you found your heart strangely warmed. Personal renewal, personal revival, it starts in the individual. It happens, doesn't it? That's one of the benefits of public worship. Our old cold hearts start to thaw out a little bit. Now, the problem is about an hour and a half, it takes about an hour and a half for me to start defrosting. <laughs> I'm not even nearly cooked, but I'm just barely starting to defrost after an hour and a half. Then it's time to leave, and I say, I, feel, I felt a tingling, a, a strange warming in my heart, but I'm not quite on fire yet for the Lord. But you know, my friends, we need these sweet hours of prayer together, don't we? We need this time of public worship. And oh, that God would come down in such a paramount way that this would become the most important part of our lives. You know, America was born in revival. George Whitfield traveled up and down the eastern seaboard in America, from Georgia all the way up to the New England states. And he preached in the open air. He preached, in many respects, the old Calvinistic gospel of grace. Whitfield was used by God. In fact, all sorts of people from different denominations came out to hear him preach the Word of God. I have a number of his sermons in print at home. One particular sermon is on uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, when Christ was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Rich theology as he preached the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Whitfield preached election. Now, I don't understand everything that he understood, but um, God used him in a mighty way. And it was an awakening. In fact, shopkeepers and farmers and factory workers would stop what they were doing and come out in droves to hear this man preach the gospel, and then they'd go back to their work. And as he preached, the people's soul in this country, in many respects, was humbled before God. And they yearned for the Lord's name to be honored. And America was born in revival. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor up in Massachusetts. He was probably one of the most brilliant thinkers, brilliant philosophers and minds that America has ever produced. He was the first president of Yale University. And those Ivy League colleges were originally established as uh, Bible schools to train people to think biblically and theologically. They were not uh, liberal institutions like they've become. In fact, if you look at some of the engravings on their school campuses, you'll see Bible verses. Anyway, uh, Edwards was a minister during the first Great Awakening in America. Edwards began to see a number of excesses, you know, as people went to the extreme with this revival. Many people became interested in expressions of emotion, and they started screaming out and falling down and showing what we would call today a more charismatic or Pentecostal kind of exuberance and dancing and so forth. And Edwards wrote a lengthy work called The Marks of a Genuine Work of God, a True Work of God, and he distinguished the biblical evidences of revival, heaven-sent revival, from the mob spirit. If you, do you know what the mob spirit is? You ever seen how people act in a, in a mob? 
I mean, before you know it, there's a psychological effect of a mob where you get caught up in the momentum of it. It's like the wave at a football game. You ever seen the wave start and you thought, oh man, I'm so tired of seeing this. I'm not going to participate this time. But by the time it got around to you, you stood up with the rest of them <laughs> and did the wave even though you thought this is so silly. But you know, it's just peer pressure and it's the psychological effect of being part of the group. And it has an effect on people. You get caught up and you, people end up behaving in ways that they didn't intend to. And Edwards, to a great degree, he wrote this lengthy treatise to show that the mob spirit and some of the emotional outbursts are not necessarily biblical evidences, what you find in the Word of God, of genuine works of God, works of revival. But yet at the same time, he, he cautioned that we not discount the whole thing because of the excesses and extremes that a few have gone to. Now, the second great awakening in America, we know Elder Wilson Thompson, a primitive Baptist minister, lived during the Second Great Awakening. Now, Shubal Stearns and Daniel Marshall, these ministers that were so used by God to plant Baptist churches in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, and throughout the Appalachian region, Shubal Stearns and Daniel, in fact, many of our own churches have connections to the late Elder Shubal Stearns and Daniel Marshall in Georgia. These men came from that first great awakening. Shubal Stearns was, he said, brought to an understanding of the truth or converted under the preaching of George Whitfield. But instead of joining the Anglicans, like Whitfield was, he joined the Baptists. Anyway, he's a fireball back in his day, and God blessed him and used him to establish primitive Baptist churches in the state of North Carolina now, later came the Second Great Awakening, and we, you've probably heard about Elder Wilson Thompson. If you've not read the autobiography of Elder Wilson Thompson, I would encourage you to do so. He was a minister that lived in the 1800s. He lived in Ohio, Kentucky, Illinois, Missouri, and he was greatly blessed by God. He had a great influence on our people, Elder Wilson Thompson. He ministered during the Second Great Awakening. You know what really stimulated the Second Great Awakening? the uh, earthquake on the New Madrid Fault. There was an earthquake on the New Madrid Fault and the water of the Mississippi River actually flowed backwards in a certain portion of that river. I mean, that's a fact. They tell you that it wasn't just somebody's perception, but there was such chasms made that the river actually in a certain section flowed the other direction, flowed north instead of south. And it was of such magnitude. I mean, people, we, we expect Californians to have earthquakes. <laughs> we don't expect people in Missouri and Kentucky and Ohio to experience earthquakes, do we? You think, I should be safe enough on inside, away from the coasts, you know. I should be safe enough from earthquakes. But So when it happened, it greatly alarmed people. In Thompson's autobiography, he talks about in a section of that book how people were sobered and made very serious-minded, and it caused them to think about how fleeting life was and how uncertain their existence was. You know, they were just traveling along, living their lives without a care in the world, but suddenly this made them think more seriously about what life was all about and how easily it could slip away and how brief and uncertain human life and existence is. Time is short. 
and they had large in-gatherings into the churches. He talks about how people would be seen around the church buildings, the meeting houses, weeping and mourning over their sins, under conviction, and how they would come forward and confess faith and hope in the Savior. And they were added to the church. They had multiple baptisms. So I say all of that to say that revival has happened in the past. What is revival? It's a supernatural manifestation of the presence and power of God after a season of spiritual decline and complacency. It's a work in which there's a new vitality and a new quality of spiritual life that's evident in the church. And the reason that we need revivals from time to time in our personal lives and in our churches and in the cause of Christ in general is because we tend to slip into a condition of apathy and coldness and spiritual slumber, don't we? It's so easy to just grow cold to the things of God, like the church at Laodicea, Revelation 3.16, we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And God said, you need to, an awakening. You need to have your eyes anointed with Isav. You're not seeing things correctly. You're actually not rich. You're poor and naked and blind. And he said, you need a change in your thinking. But you see, it's easy to slip into the situation that Amos describes in Amos 6.1. Woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. Just yawning our way through life. Serving the Lord if it's convenient. Oh my friends, may I say, the Lord's day, the house of God should be the most important thing in our lives. You say, Brother Mike, wake up and smell the coffee. Get real. You're living in a fantasy world. You're wishing for the happy days past. Well, I'm telling you, every day in the past wasn't happy. They had moments when God broke through and awakened the people. But we need it again. I believe that we need it again. We need God to work in people's lives and hearts. Have you grown cold and complacent? Do you, you find your mind wandering in the world just entrapping you, my friend, so that you say, I, I'm just really not as interested as I used to be? Then may God work. Oh, Lord, here's my prayer. Revive thy work in brother so-and-so's life. Revive thy work in sister so-and-so's heart. In our church, in my life, in the midst of the years of bondage, Lord, Awaken us and cause this vine to grow again. J.I. Packer said times of revival bring a deep sense of being always in God's sight. Here's what happens when God is moving. People realize that God is real. They have a deep sense of being always in God's sight. Times of revival brings a situation in which spiritual things become overwhelmingly real. And God's truth becomes overwhelmingly Powerful, both to wound and to heal. Conviction of sin becomes intolerable. I just can't bear the guilt that I feel. Repentance then goes deep. And faith springs up strong and assured. And spiritual understanding grows quick and keen. And converts mature in, a short, in short order. And Christians become fearless in witnessing and tireless in their Savior's service. You say, Brother Michael, are there any biblical examples of revivals in the past? Yes, King Hezekiah's revival. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, beginning in the 21st verse. Josiah's Passover in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verse 18. King Josiah 
they found the Word of God again. And that's what stimulated the people to get serious about serving the Lord. God began to move. He began to work through His Word. They found the law of the Lord in the house of the Lord. It had been hidden way back in a dusty corner somewhere. They uncovered it and said, well, I wonder what this is. It's a Bible. What's a Bible doing in the church? Let's read it. And when they started reading it, suddenly the Lord began to work in people's hearts and consciences, and they were brought to repentance and to a recommitment of devotion to the Lord. What about Nehemiah's revival? Nehemiah chapter 8. After Nehemiah had rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem in 52 days, two miles worth of wall, rebuilt in an amazing 52 days, less than two months, they reestablished this boundary around the city of God. After that happened... Then Ezra the scribe took the word of God and he began to read distinctly from it. And the other priests of the Levites caused the people to understand the reading. They went about interpreting. This means this. They did for the people what a preacher tries to do from the pulpit. Take the word and explain it and help them learn how to apply it to their personal lives. And it says that when they did this, the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. It was a time of awakening, a time of renewal. Biblical examples of a work of God in the midst of his people. You know, there are some poetic descriptions of revival in the Bible. What is revival? It's the return of springtime after winter without the yellow pollen. I was thinking as we sang this morning, hacking and coughing our way through a song service, that it's probably good for us to get that yellow dust out of our lungs, you know, to sing a little bit. Springtime's a glorious time, sands the yellow dust without the pollen. But um, other than that, Song of Solomon chapter 2 says, The winter is past and gone, the rain is over and gone, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The flowers give a good smell, and the time of spring has returned. What a beautiful poetic description of revival. You know what revival is in the church? It's when spring comes after a long, cold, hard blast of winter. Here's another poetic description of revival. Isaiah 35.1, it's a garden suddenly blooming in the desert. Listen to this, the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. And say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not, for your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped and the lame man shall leap as a heart. And the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. That's revival. Can you imagine the Mojave Desert suddenly blossoming and blooming like a garden spot? That's what happens when God moves in revival. When what looks to be dead and lifeless is suddenly quickened and revived. Now, revival is not the same as regeneration. Regeneration is new life. Revival is the awakening of dormant life, you know. I'm telling you, God regenerates his people sovereignly. It's a work of his grace. But you know, after we've been born again, given spiritual life, it's easy for that life to become indolent and cold and lifeless. We need to be revived. 
you revive somebody who's fainted, right? You give them some smelling sauce. You give them, you know, CPR or mouth-to-mouth resuscitation or some technique that is intended to help them awaken again. My alarm clock revives me in the morning, (laughs) much to my chagrin. I need it, though, because I love to slumber. It awakens me. It's like the prodigal son coming out of his doldrums in the hog pen and suddenly coming to himself saying, how foolish I've been. My father's house has bread enough and to spare and I'm perishing with hunger. And the young man decides that he needs to go home confessing his sin in repentance. What is revival? It's the return of spring after winter. It's a garden suddenly blooming in the desert. According to Ezekiel 34:26, a revival is compared to showers of rain after an extended drought. Listen to this verse. I will make them in places round about my hill, the Lord says, a blessing. And I will cause the shower to come down in his season. There shall be showers of blessing. That's a revival. When God rains on his people a heavenly rain. When the Savior visits his plantation and grants us a gracious rain, there are showers of blessing. Oh, my friends, after a long drought, what a blessing it is to have that reviving rainfall. In the first six chapters of Zechariah's prophecy, now we're preaching from Habakkuk's prophecy. You just turn a few pages to the right. You'll find Zechariah's prophecy. It's one of my favorite of the minor prophets. And in the first six chapters of Zechariah's prophecy, you have the record of Zechariah's night visions. There were eight of them. God gave Zechariah eight night visions. That is, dreams during one night. He had eight visions. The night visions of Zechariah spell out, if you please, a theology of revival. You can learn a lot about what it is and how, what it looks like and how it works and why God sends it by studying Zechariah's night visions. For instance, in chapter 1, he has the vision of the horses and the riders. And this vision teaches us that the motive, God's motive in revival, is the glory of his own name. God sends revival not because we deserve it, but so that he will be glorified. And that's really one of the evidences that a revival is genuine. Is God being glorified? Is his name exalted and paramount? The vision of the horses and the riders teaches us the motive for revival is the glory of God's name. The vision of the golden lampstand in Zechariah chapter 4 teaches that the means of revival is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. He says, it's not by might nor by power, but it's by my spirit, saith the Lord. He says, Zerubbabel will lay the foundation and put the headstone in the building and the shout will go up, grace, grace, unto it. Not works, works. You see, revival is not something we can work up. It's something God has to send down. It's something that the Lord blesses his people with in spite of their lack of merit. We can't plan one. We can't make it happen. We can't kindle our own fire. But God has to rain it down upon us according to his sovereign will and purpose. Not by might nor by power, but it's by my spirit. That's talking about how revival happens, the means of revival. Then the vision of the surveyor in Zechariah chapter 2 teaches that the nature of revival is basically a return 
of the manifest presence of God. God suddenly is very near. We feel him near. He's, it's evident that he's near. Instead of seeming to be far off and hiding his face from us, the presence of God is strong in the midst of his people when revival comes. In the vision of the flying scroll in Zechariah chapter 5, teaches us that the antecedent to revival is often divine judgment. God judges his people. His hand is heavy upon them, and it brings them to a point of self-humbling, and it's in their extremity that God then reveals his divine opportunity to bless. That's the vision of the flying scroll. Then the vision of the woman in the ephah, or in the basket, a woman being carried in a basket in Zechariah chapter 5. Now, he had all these crazy dreams at night. Eight night visions. One night. Can you imagine the headache he must have had when he woke up that next morning after having these eight night visions? So what did you dream about last night, Zechariah? Well, I, let me tell you. It'll take me six chapters to spell it out. The vision of the woman in the ephah, the vision of the flying scroll, the vision of the surveyor, the vision of the golden lampstand, the vision of the horses and the riders, and there are several others. But the vision of the woman in the ephah teaches us that the result of revival is a genuine repentance from sin that has lasting effects in terms of ethical godliness in the lives of the people. When God is truly working, it will have a lasting effect. It will change the way people are living. And you say, Brother Mike, are you saying that everything that goes by the name of revival isn't necessarily a genuine revival? Probably not. It's, it's, that's what I'm saying. It's probably not. But I don't know which ones are and which ones aren't. But if you want to really find out, my friends, just look at the long-lasting effect in the lives of the people that were touched by it. Because the vision of the woman in the ephah teaches us that when God is really moving, there's a genuine repentance of sin and a lasting change in an ethical way in terms of the way people live. So the night visions of Zechariah spell out a theology of revival. Habakkuk's prayer is a daring request. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. God's already said the people are going into judgment. Habakkuk says, okay, I understand, Lord, but while we're there, would you please have mercy on us? In wrath, in your wrath, remember mercy. My friends, don't ever stop praying for mercy, even when you have a sense that God's justice and judgment rests upon you. Interestingly, he makes this request that in the midst of the years, that is in the very middle of the nation's captivity, God would turn the people back to him in spiritual renewal and repentance. Did you notice the word shiggy ono that I read at the beginning of the sermon? You thought, what in the world? Brother Mike, why are you using such big... The word, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigionoth. How many of you were born into this world knowing what that meant? Not me. <laughs> and how many know what it means now after these many years? I only do because I looked it up. Shigionoth is a musical notation. You know, in our songbook, we have hymns written and sometimes you'll see a notation, you know, crescendo. Or pause, you know, you'll see a rest for pausing. Or you'll see, you know, sing it faster, sing it slower. Those are musical notations. Well, this is a musical notation, and it teaches that Habakkuk's prayer in chapter 3 was actually used as a song. His prayer is a song. Now, this prophet started the book sighing. 
How long, O Lord? But he ends it singing. This is a song. And what is it a song about that he's about to tell us in chapter 3? And I'm not going to go through it in detail. Notice what he says. Verse 3, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. These are mountains near the southern end of, the, of Judah. So we're over here in Babylon, but God is rising up and coming to rescue us. That's the thought. God came from Teman. He's leaving the mountains of the Holy Land, and he's coming all the way over here to Iraq or Babylon, Chaldea, to rescue his people. And he's going to rescue us just like he rescued his people out of Egypt. Notice he says his glory covered the heavens. His, the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand. And there was the hiding of his power. If you read this, it sounds like a, a movie, a modern movie with a great creature, being, that is coming to save the day. I mean, here's a superhero that has abilities, horns out of his hand, that is power in his hand. He has lightning about him, thunder. You talk about a superhero. Habakkuk's song is about a God who came from Teman, who steps from hiding, as it were, onto the stage, and he's coming with great, awesome, and terrible abilities and power. And he says, verse 5, before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. I mean, wherever he walks, the ground is on fire, and there's disease, pestilence, you know what happened when God went into Egypt to rescue Moses and the Israelites? You have lightnings and thunderings and you have plagues and pestilence, right? The ten plagues, lice, frogs, the rivers turned to blood. Listen to this. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove us under the nations and the everlasting mountains were scattered and the perpetual hills did bow. All nature submits to the ways of this everlasting God. Habakkuk says in verse 8, was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Lord, were you upset with the water? Was thy wrath against the sea? Remember when the children of Israel came through the Red Sea? God caused the waters to congeal, and Moses and the Israelites crossed on dry ground. He says that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation. What he is doing in this song is poetically he's describing the exodus and their journeys through the wilderness. Verse 10, the mountains saw thee, they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their habitation. Remember when Joshua and the armies of Israel fought the Amorites? Joshua chapter 6, the sun and the moon stood still so that they could finish the battle. At the light of thine arrows they went at the shining... In other words, this language is describing a triumphant God. The violent storm, the terrible plagues, the widespread destruction is descriptive of how their heroic Savior God worked to defeat the nation's enemies and carried the nation of Israel all the way to the promised land. God marched through the wilderness and he gave the people one conquest after another over the Canaanites as they took possession of the land that God had given them as an inheritance. Habakkuk is remembering God's deliverance in the past as hope for the present that he would deliver them again. Lord, you've revived your people in the past. Revive thy work, not our work, thy work in the midst of the years. Lord, just as you've done in the past, 
We pray that you would give us a fresh deliverance in our day. A new exodus, if you please. And all of this, verse 13 says, Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people. All of this was done out of love for God's people. That fact gives Habakkuk hope for a new revival, a new exodus, if you will. And by the way, we too today may repeat the Lord's wonderful works in times past and draw hope from it for a fresh deliverance in our day. That's one of the reasons we sing that song, when Moses and the Israelites from Egypt's land did flee, behind them were proud Pharaoh's host, in front of them the sea. God raised the waters like a wall and fire from heaven did fall. And he says, and the God that lived in the olden times is just the same today. That is, we can trust him to do the same for us today if he's pleased to do so. He's able. So let's not lose hope for revival. I said Zechariah is um, a theology of revival. I want to read two verses as we close. Zechariah 10 verse 1 first, and then we'll go to 12:10. 10. 10 verse 1, ask ye of the Lord. We're talking about praying for revival. Here's my encouragement to you today, dear friend. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So it's raining right now. Pray that he would keep blessing us. Brother Andy prayed this morning that God would bless his church, this church in the future. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. Listen to verse 6. And I will strengthen the house of Judah and save the house of Joseph. And I'll bring them again to place them for I have mercy upon them and they shall be as though I had not cast them off. For I am the Lord their God and will hear them. Their heart shall rejoice, as verse 7, as through wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. That's revival. Then chapter 12, verse 10 of Zechariah. I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace. I will pour out the Holy Spirit, the spirit of grace and supplicate. That spirit's going to indict prayer in the hearts of the people, the spirit of grace and supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. You'll have a fresh view of Christ and they shall mourn for him. Mourn because of the sufferings of Christ for our sins as one mourneth for his only son. He said in chapter 13, but that mourning will be turned into joy when you realize that the fountain was opened for the house of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. How we need to keep praying Revive thy work, O Lord, in the midst of these years, that we might rejoice in him. The world is getting worse and worse, but the church of the Lord Jesus Christ can continue to be a light and a blessing, even in the midst of a world that's headed for judgment. Amen.